month's edition of Juicing the Big Screen, your movies review and discussion podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Tracing. And I am Corbin Keller. And welcome to the show. It has been a while. Corbin and I have been busy. These things happen in life. Uh, we will try to make these more regular so that we can start prepping ourselves for Oscar season, which will be here before you know it, um, since it is already September. Oscars short lists and hypothetical lists start coming out on publications in like, I don't know, a month or two. So we'll start trying to tackle that shit then. Yeah, I know. Right. Uh, Cause that usually takes us three, four months to do um, at our given pacing, but maybe we'll try to speed, speed through it a little bit faster. Um, anyway, we're back, back in the New York groove. Welcome to the show. We are here today to talk about the 1974 film, The Conversation, and the 2009 film, The White Ribbon. Uh, Corwin Heller, where would you like to start? The 70s or Germany? Uh, let's start uh, this conversation with a conversation. Starting a conversation with a conversation. I like it. Uh, the Conversation came out in 1974. It was written and directed by Francis Ford Coppola, starring Gene Hackman, John Cazale, and one of his five films he ever made, and Alan Garfield. Uh, the film had an estimated budget of $1.6 million, uh, which, damn, that's way less than you would have thought. Um, the cumulative worldwide gross I see here on IMDb is $4.6 million and change which honestly feels low for a film that is so well regarded as this but who's to really say how accurate any of these numbers are they could all be made up they probably all are i I just assume every number ever is made up numbers aren't real uh so how can we be real i I work i work with engineers daily and i just i don't know how those numbers come to be so i just assume they're picked just randomly as is as someone whose full-time job it is is to create prices for things, yes, all numbers are in fact bullshit made up. <laughs> if you want to know how the thing you're buying got priced the way it was, it was because someone eventually gave up. <laughs> that's 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 the long and short of it. Um, the tagline to this film is "Harry Call will go anywhere to bug a private conversation." Which man is that? Not a tagline. Not not a good tagline and also really creepy. Yeah, um, it feels like the guy who made taglines was off that day and that was the best they had because that is not a tagline uh, at all. What would you say to the idea that every tagline we've ever read off of a movie poster is just made up by the guy making the movie poster as he's printing it? Especially like back in the day when they had to probably arrange like the uh, letters and the images on one of those, you know, those things that they used to to they used to use to arrange newspapers. It would be that big thing uh, with like light yes. coming under it, like a tracing board and you'd arrange yes. everything. That must have been how they also made posters back in the day. So to that effect, I think you're 100 percent right. And that guy picked up the nearest by seven words. And that formed a relatively cohesive sentence. I was like, them's the movie words. Got them. That's it. We did it. Sold. 
Uh, the film is about, oh, I skipped a section. This film was nominated for three Oscars, winning none of them, but nominated for three. It was nominated for Best Picture for Francis Ford Coppola, Best Writing Original Screenplay for Francis Ford Coppola, and Best Sound for Walter Murch and Art Rochester. Uh, and for anyone who is curious, the film lost the, the that year uh, in the best picture in the best picture category to The Godfather Part Two. So it's tough for Coppola to really be that beat up since he still won Best Picture that year. <laughs> um, it lost Best Sound to a film called Earthquake that I have never heard of before, um, and it lost uh, Best Writing to Chinatown. Wow, what a year! Man. Uh, also, Earthquake, apparently not a good movie, but really good sound. So not worth checking out. Uh, the film itself. Unless you're is, blind. I guess. But then are you getting the payoff of the visual earthquake? Oh, but if the movie's bad, who's to say? The film itself is about a paranoid and secretive surveillance expert who has a crisis of conscience when he suspects that the couple he is spying on will be murdered. Corwin Heller, this was your pick, so you can go ahead and get us started. Um, believe it or not, there's a lot of talking in this. Um, God, I fucking hate it when you make me start because I I am not the. I don't make you start. This is how the show we've decided we was came to be up formated, with it. Formatted. The, yes. We we made this up. AKA, you made me do this. <laughs> I've made you do nothing. Uh, very true. Um. Man, uh, let's let's really jog. I'm bad at this when I watch the movie like the day fucking before. Jesus. What do you yeah, want me for, to say? For reference, it's, we watched these movies a month ago and just hadn't had the time to record. So Court and I are both uh, not not yeah. ready. You're not not as prepared as we would have been like three, four weeks ago. I really enjoyed the story. I really enjoyed the suspense and how it was all laid out. Looking back three weeks on I can't say that there's really anything that sticks with me about this film other than John Cazale's line about the very beginning when uh, they're in the van after doing the first opening scene where they're they're recording the audio from the couple that is the basis for the rest of the story and John Cazale says to him why do you even pay attention to what's on the tape? We're here just to do this job. There's no reason to dig into it. And oh my God, just listen to Fredo because he knows what's up. <laughs> Everything in this film is just falling back on the fact that, man, you are really bad at separating your life from your work. That's it. That's the film. The film is an advoc is an advocation for for a better work life balance. This actually is the uh, the invention of quiet quitting, which is not a real thing. <laughs> but yes, I agree. No, but we all do it anyway. Uh, some would say it's the best way to quit your job, which is to keep collecting paychecks. Um, anyway, yeah, this is um, it's an amazing film because. Genuinely, the point of it is that not a lot happens. Um, it, and it, it feeds off of your expectation of this type of narrative story, right? It 
which you have to assume in 1974 for um, this type of like, it's like an anti-thriller in that way where there isn't really that, that payoff shocking moment ever. You, 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 kind of are there for the murder at the end but like not really and you never get to find out in what manner uh harry was was bugged in the film so really it, it fully subverts all of the expectation uh, i, I want to know i know but it really does subvert all the expectations one would have about the way that this film typically gets told which in 1974 has to be a decently radical concept maybe not for storytelling as a as a you know more blanket medium because there's been subversion in storytelling since the first story got told and someone thought of a craftier way of kind of moving itself around it but for film because i mean like this is like the anti-hitchcock film in a lot of those types of ways you know which are very much so built around suspense leading up to the payoff this has no payoff in that way it is about the journey um and to that effect it is incredibly effective it it truly has you listening with harry call tr- to the same recording over and over and over again trying to figure out what the crime is or what the clue is that's going to better inform you what you think the character needs to do to help in the situation or to better understand it or whatever. And I, along the way, you get to share in some of the creepiness of the fact that Harry is going down this rabbit hole that he has no way to get himself out of. Um, I, I started off making this like my little intro to the show, but now I think we're just talking about plot stuff. So let's just get into it. Uh, Amen. All right. So at the, at the beginning, the beginning of the movie is Harry. I'm just going to use actor names because I'm so bad at character names. Gene Hackman, John Cazale, and oh, the fucking cop. What was the cop's name? Do you remember the cop's name? Uh, Peter. Pete. Pete. Yes. 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 Peter. Um, Oh man, what the fuck was his actors? It doesn't matter. Uh, Peter Stormare. Was it Paul? Yeah, I have no idea. It could have been. It doesn't matter. We should pull um, up IMDb. That's pretty big. I'm looking one. at it and I still don't know who the actor is. I see a Paul, but I don't know who's who. So Fair. fucking who cares? Uh, but regardless, they're recording the actual conversation that comes into play. Basically, what's happening is uh, some very, very rich person. I forget if they said it was a um, what type of company it was. I'm not sure they did. It might have been a, a a bank or something, some big business, West Coast, San Francisco area, uh, wanted his uh, daughter and her husband recorded for uh, purposes that we don't understand. We later get revealed that, uh, early we later learn that this is what Harry Call does. This is what Gene Hackman's character does. He is a surveillance, a private surveillance expert who just does these types of things. Um, you get to see glimpses into his life, which is uh, very much so at a distance from everyone within it. He has no true connection interpersonally with the people he works with and is keeping the woman that he is seeing at something of an arm's length as well. 
Uh, he's highly respected in this field. Uh, but also, you know, no, I guess, real friends or contacts in that area. Uh, basically to say he is a, rec- a recluse, I guess is probably the best word for him. A hermit almost. That's what I thought of. But he goes the man, out. The yeah. man lives in his world that he... Oh, what's the term for it? He's the, not the caretaker, but he... King of his domain. He is the king of his domain. The master of the kingdom, whatever it is. Um, king of the castle. Are you also picturing George Costanza? This I am also picturing okay. George Costanza. Okay. Yes, of course. Uh, Summer of George. Believe it or not. Um, I saw that clip today of uh, Jerry saying to Elaine after she bows out, the queen is dead. And she is. Hope it hurt, bitch. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, um, um, but he he has designed the world very carefully that he lives in, and he is not one to give up that control. Exactly, and you can see the painstaking lengths he has gone to have, not necessarily even the distance per se, but the distance that he has established is clearly a method of control. It's not that he doesn't want to have people to talk with. It's not that he doesn't want to have people like him. It's not that he doesn't want to have love. He clearly shows a want for these things as there uh, is you know, some mild friction in each of those areas throughout the film. It's very much so that he wants to control the situation because he, his experience in his line of work is all about being able to do just that and not very much of not being the subject of someone else's surveillance, which also comes up with the uh, the the pen microphone um, in his workshop. So, because I mean, which it's I a, do want to go back and talk about at some point. Go ahead. We're, I'm not really going in any order here. That is such an incredibly fucked up thing to do, right? Like that crossed the line and was in every right to react the way he did, even though everyone was like, oh, Harry, I'm What's going on? Why are you upset? That's what we do. It's like, no, like you bugged me during a very private conversation. You're supposed to be my friend, not like some client that I was upset at that. Well, it, it's it's an astonishing microcosm of the entirety of the, the the moral ethics of the film, you know, which is. Bugging people is kind of fucked up. <laughs> That's their jobs but like is it right or wrong is kind of the gray area there you know what i mean like harry's job is to literally go do a bunch of bugging that's how he makes his money uh and that fucking guy the salesman dude his job is to sell the things that do the bugging harry being a potential client that makes doing crazy shit like that i guess kind of his job to show the uh use case efficacy of one of those types of things you know what I mean? it, like that's right, that's Mr. college the, uh, with your big words thanks pal um i just finished reading dostoevsky's uh crime and punishment uh thank you very much um it was a real thrill it's it, it's it's a, kind of an amazing scene because to see harry's degree of i don't know rage is perfectly well understandable um 
in in a multitude of ways because for one yeah like i think all of us would be mad if we got bugged right at the moment we were talking to our uh significant other in a very private moment but also it shows to him that he is also susceptible to falling for these things he is susceptible to being bugged which ends up being a huge part of the movie especially in its finality or in its finale so i mean how do you how do you in- interpret that moral quandary of bugging as a whole corwin heller i am back If you said something in the past 10 seconds, okay. I did not hear it. <laughs> How do you view the the, the moral quandary of, of bugging as a whole? Um, since, you know, there was such a, a, a virulent reaction to that scene. Well, Josh, scene. of course, this is pre-Patriot Act. So the legality of the situation is very different than what we would see today. <sighs> oh, man. Um, it's It sucks because... On one hand, I grew up watching spy movies and love them. So, of course, yeah, when the good guys are doing it, yeah, he's doing it to stop a bad guy. Yeah, that's righteous. That's honorable. That's, you know, what you need to do to to settle these sort of, you know, terrorist behaviors. Uh, On the other hand, um, as we've seen from, you know, the entirety of our adult lives, uh, who decides who is the good guy? leads to a very moral gray and almost black area where shit, maybe this isn't something that anyone should have done to them literally ever. Um, That is a discussion that I bet we could have for a very long time and reach no foregone conclusion. Um, But on the same, at the same time, as part of the same discussion, the idea of doing it to someone who, you are meant to have a close personal relationship with is almost certainly and without question morally bankrupt. I think that's one of the things that the film does incredibly well, which is to present with you to you a lot of these types of ideas and to willfully answer none of them because these are such fascinating issues that are still fascinating today. Like you just said, um, like government espionage is maybe a, a a dark necessity, but I think we can all agree that private espionage is probably wildly unnecessary and wrong. Um, but again, the film just kind of throws it out there and lets you feel about it however it is you feel about it, and then moves on. And it it it's able to do that throughout the film. Um while also presenting you with different types of stakes or reasons for the characters to be invested. Because one of the other main attributes to uh, Harry Call's character is that he had to leave Detroit because he got involved in, what was it? The auto, uh, auto workers union and some controversy therein that led to someone getting killed. Um, I think it was two people that were killed. Yeah, but it was it was because it, it was the it was an auto manufacturer thing, right? Uh, yes, I mean it's Detroit, so that's what it, yeah it would make the most, especially Detroit in like the seventies, late sixties, um, back when we actually made cars. Uh, uh, no, a lot, but anyway, um, 
so that also proves as a, a catalyst for him to kind of understand the stakes for what he's doing without even necessarily driving a morality behind it. Like, it's not that he is saying what I do is wrong. My profession is bad, blah, 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 blah. The, having those types uh, that type of history to introduce those stakes is m- very clever because it's more like I know what the repercussions of my work can be if gone into the wrong hands. Not that that's directly my fault, <laughs> but I know what can come of it, which is a very important distinction so that the movie doesn't have you necessarily telling you what side to take, but instead just, again, kind of lays it up for you. Yes. Show, don't tell. Right. And then it, it also helps kind of, you know, guide Harry's reaction being as extreme as, as it is. Uh, mm-hmm. So for for the subversion part of it, I guess we'll get to your least favorite part of it, which is that mm-hmm. at the end you don't find. So basically, Harry decides not to turn over his tape and, and tapes and findings to I, I fucking... Um, God damn it. Fucking uh, God, I can never remember this fucking guy's name. He's so famous. Um, Robert Duvall. Holy shit. Robert Duvall. I will never remember Robert Duvall's name. I've seen so many Robert Duvall movies. I will never remember that his name is Robert Duvall, and I have no good reason for why. Um, Decides not to turn over the tapes to Robert Duvall and his evil henchman, young Harrison Ford. Um, far too young Harrison Ford. It's like, you should be older than this Harrison Ford. Um, and that leads to him getting phone calls on phone lines that theoretically don't really exist and no one should have the number to. Um, and later on in the film leads to them having recordings of him saying stuff in his apartment alone that again, they would should theoretically have no capability of, of obtaining, but have um, these types of things increase Harry's like already, very stilted sense of, uh, I don't know, personal protection, uh, fracture the bubble he's created for himself and start driving him, you know, fucking bananas. Um, Part of the reason for that is also this funny thing of like, you know, the more, you know, the more you realize, the less, you know, he, he is, he knows so much about private espionage that it also only increases his paranoia. Like, if it was you or I, you know, mm-hmm. idiots, <laughs> I don't think we'd be as paranoid as him because he knows all the ways that they can get over on him. You and I wouldn't like we wouldn't have torn up our apartment at the end of the movie because we would be like, I don't know how they got this. I can't even begin to guess how they got it. I don't even know where I would check. Oh, well, I guess they own me. Just turn Ign- it over now. Ignorance is bliss. Exactly. I lost my wallet somewhere in my apartment uh, going on five days ago, and I haven't torn it to shreds nearly as much as Harry did in 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, at that point, just buy a new one. (laughs) Make a new DMV appointment. That's tough. Yeah, just a whole new start, a whole new life somewhere else. Um, does that can I do that now? Am I free? Uh, that really is all it takes, yeah. What would your new name be? Carl. LeBron James. 
very inconspicuous. Oh, I love it. Um, yeah, so it, it really, he really, I mean, this is what Corwin had, had said about John Cazale's character telling him this at the beginning, but he really is doing nothing but fucking himself in this movie. Out of a very understandable position, very, a very, you know, understandable given the backstory presented to us, but it, it, it very much so is if he had just handed over the documents, he actually might have saved a life. Who knows? Um, mm. And instead, he is so incredibly fearful and looking to control a situation based on his, well, controlling behavior as well as his personal history within his own profession, that his it, you know, his actions end up kind of leading to Robert Duvall's death and his ultimate collapse into insanity and probably ruined his life because those guys definitely know that he knew more than he should. Mm-hmm. See, this is why I'm happy to be stupid. Everybody who dies in any spy movie dies because they knew too much. I don't know anything. I'm safe. Mm. Don't forget, though, there is the Bill Murray film, The Man Who Knew Too Little. I haven't seen it. <laughs> There's an irony in that. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh. yeah, it's um, it's a very tense film. There is a lot of tension packed into every single moment. I, I, I would guess that's from us kind of being under the guise of like what is what's important and what's being recorded you know what i mean like we're so in the dark that it almost it almost makes every scene feel kind of you know potentially very vital because we don't know what's happening hmm. you know what i mean i do i don't cuz like why else would it really you know what I mean? Like, like that. Did I mean? Did you have that sense that <laughs> overwhelming? Even having seen the movie before, like you still kind of feel like that, that sense of dread, that suspense, that vaguely thrillerish aspect. Like, some eventually someone's gonna pop out of something. Guns akimbo, right? I definitely agree. There's just that slow climactic build that you, you know, like this is never going to be someone's first film they ever watch unless it is, but you know, to expect something to happen, you know, that every film builds to something. There's going to be some big reveal. Something chaotic is going to happen. You're just waiting for it and waiting for it and waiting for it. And you know, the stakes on hand, or at least you think, you know, the stakes on hand. So of course you're just sitting there in it, sitting there in anticipation for what he discovers that's going to light the fuse. So yes, I know exactly what you're saying. For once. <laughs> yeah, and again, I I think having that kind of um, that type of visual tension in such an tense anticlimactic fashion is really an interesting thing to have so early on in, I guess what one would think of as like the thriller genre or the maybe not thriller thrillers might still be the wrong word, but like, again, I, just to reference Hitchcock, this feels so anti Hitchcock. This feels like the exact opposite 
of Hitchcock like story structure payoff, but done with that same kind of tension that he would deliver, which is, you know, like Tippy Hedren climbing the stairs and the birds. Like it's very slow, it's methodical. The lighting is very ominous. Fuck that movie. Like the music is very low underneath it. So you're really like feeling Tippy Hedren kind of climb the stairs. But then when she gets to the top, she gets attacked by the birds in that room that's missing the ceiling, right? In this, that moment never really comes. And that's what's so kind of interesting about it and what makes it such an interesting movie to keep watching because it really feels so in the details. It's not about like, oh, the shower curtains opens up and and, uh, Janet Lee's getting stabbed. Like there is not that moment, but it still delivers that feeling as, you know, the uh, Norman Bates character dressed in drag approaches the bathtub. Like it still feels like that without having almost any of the consequences that a Hitchcock film would have. It, it yeah, it's interestingly done. Oh, uh, well, I guess we've gabbed about this one for a while. Um, do you have any final thoughts on it before we go into ratings and reviews? Where would you rank this among John Cazale's big five? Oh, that's an impossible question. All right. So just to uh, rattle just off the big it. five, if you're not familiar, um, The Godfather's part one and two, The Deer Hunter, The Conversation, and Dog Day Afternoon. Given the competition, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess this is the worst. I would agree. And I'm not saying that with excitement because I hate this film. I'm saying that because I was expecting a fight. But yeah, I mean, those are four <laughs> otherworldly films where this four, is <laughs> four of the best movies of the, of, of the 70s. <laughs> I mean, literally the go to powerhouse film franchise of all time before Disney bought everything. Uh, Al Pacino's what breakout role with him there alongside it and then a powerhouse of Meryl Streep, Robert De Niro, Christopher Walken, and oh fuck, who's the fourth guy in the Deer Hunter? I have no recollection uh, of who that last guy is. It doesn't matter. Regardless, uh, it's... John Savage. I think it's a weak link. I think, yeah, it looks like it's John Savage. I think it's just a guy. It might just be the four people. It's, it's, it's De Niro, Walken, Cazal, Meryl Streep, and then John Savage, George Dunza, Chuck Aspergren. Yeah, no one, no one, no one important. All right. Well, four big time players. Uh, now that I see him as a younger person, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, of these five movies, these five seminal John Cazal films, the only five that he was in. Uh, let's see. One, two, um, three. Three of them won Best Picture between The Godfather Part 1 and 2 and The Deer Hunter. Um the conversation would have been impossible to win best picture because the Godfather part two won best picture that year. So that one couldn't even win that award. And the third one dog day afternoon was nominated for best picture and won for best screenplay. Um, Like it, he, 
it just he, he how how do you how do you do better man how do you do better you, you can't that's why it's so widely discussed yeah um oh get, i mean give me he, a- he was in five films and you know we have this top five you could pick any other actors top five out of a pool of 50 and, and still probably not be able to reach like Tom Hanks top five films might not be able to stack up against this. No, no one's, I think no one's top five films stack up against this. Um, maybe like Streep or De Niro. I think Pacino maybe? could just because he was in three of the five already. Name me two other Pacino films that you think are like truly on that level. Uh, Jack and Jill. <laughs> good, good, good start. Good start. Doug Pacino. Uh, and 88 think... minutes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let me look up Al Pacino real quick. So I don't. Because I know like, there's Scent of a one. Woman is fine, but it's. He, it's, it's, it's not fine. Yeah. Uh, he uh, is obviously up there. But I, it's Serpico. Okay, yeah, the other, the other Pacino, Sidney Lumet film. Yeah, Uh, Jack and Jill. Fuck me. Um, Anyway, oh, let's finish this up, dude. Ocean's Thirteen, of course. (laughs) Fuck you. Ocean's Eight is better than Ocean's Twelve and Thirteen. I stand by this. Uh. Oceans 8 might might be better than Oceans 12. Oceans 13 stands on its own. I'll have to rewatch them again, but I really two did is not the, care for... 2 is the really, really bad one. I did not care for 12 or 13. That's if, fair. But my, I've also haven't seen them in like a while, and I've seen Oceans 8 pretty recently. I, uh, actually, while I was going back and looking at Al Pacino films, I found one that I kind of want to watch more than the one I had picked for next week, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Cool. Give me a, give me some final rating and review or at least stars. Um, uh, I'm going to give this four. Fuck, it's been so long. Four, 4.5, 4, 4.5. I'm going to give it a four. Cause I, I can't commit. Um, I'm going to give this a solid four and a half. I, I, I love this movie. I was so happy when you picked it. I, I probably watch this movie like maybe like once every other year, which I think is pretty frequent for rewatches for films. Yeah. Um, cause it's, it's a good fucking, and it's one of those movies that feels like it's always available somewhere. That's the other thing that's always made this film such an easy rewatch is it feels yeah. incredibly accessible. Right. Um, and again, without it having all the usual kind of like action beats or um, like car chases or gunfights, like there's not really any of that in it. So it never kind of feels wrought. And in fact, not having those kind of place markers for the film makes some of those middle bits a little bit more forgettable, but like in a good way where you're like, oh, yeah, I forgot about this scene. Like. Let's dig into what happens here because there's not like the fallout of a car chase or the build up to uh, fucking stabbing or some shit like that. It always good. Um, I did actually have one last question I totally forgot about. Uh, the film ends. 
with uh, Harry playing saxophone in his completely stripped down apartment as the camera kind of just shows you images Oops. of what he did to his space. Um, what do you make of that ending? Complete mental breakdown. Just he is off the deep end and he is just trying to make peace with himself. Oh, do you think it was bugged in the saxophone? I have no idea. That's a great the, guess, though. Because it's the one thing he didn't tear to pieces. I didn't even think about it. That's a great guess. Did, does he look into it? I don't know. They never show him tearing into it. Not even tearing or, into it. I mean, just like yeah. put a flashlight to it, but I don't know. It's a great, you know, because he takes he takes that moment where he like they know how religious he is and religion is like a big part of like his character where he doesn't rip apart the Virgin Mary Virgin Mary statue. And then eventually he he can't find anything else to tear apart. He is at wit's end. He goes back and he he gives in and rips it to pieces and there's nothing inside. And I think that's the last thing he does before playing the saxophone and i bet that would be a very good piece of like hey that's the one place he won't be able to look it's a really solid guess i should be a filmmaker because i would imagine if you put it far enough up then it wouldn't blow out the speaker i mean in terms of volume because if you have it too close to the the horn where the volume of the of the instrument is at its loudest it might just demolish the speaker if it's not if it's too sensitive of a microphone or you know um, be seen well i'm not even talking about that because when you hear the recording because that's what you know that's the uh true that's the thing that they play for him when they call him on the phone and they they play for him um a recording of him playing the saxophone hmm that that's that's the recording that they play to show him like we fucking got you dumb bitch um oh that's a great point i i i also looked at it as some form of like resignation just acceptance point, acceptance yeah just just a fuck it man i you've won i've lost i've lost everything in the process Essentially, he essentially lost his business, or at least his um, his work associates. He's destroyed his apartment. He made an enemy out of the woman he had. Like he he lost everything, including his mental faculty, um, and definitely his security deposit. Uh and uh, this is this is his attempt at kind of reconciling his own person. Look, yeah. This is my last gasp at trying to keep myself together. Yeah, fascinating food. Fascinating movie. Big fan. Are you excited for Francis Ford Coppola's upcoming uh, money pit project of Megalopolis? No. Really? Why not? Uh Uh, I just uh, I I don't know if I have the faith in the blind faith in Francis Ford Coppola where the things I've seen come out for it haven't exactly inspired hope. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola has made 
five 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 movies since 1997 name one of them i, I don't think i could <laughs> that's that i think that's a big part of it let's see francis or i have it up in front of me you don't have to yeah don't don't look up those movies specifically but man this is this is bad yeah um in 2016 distant vision 2011 twixt 20 2009 tetro 2007 youth without youth and uh 1997 the rainmaker those are his last five films credited as the director um I don't know any of them, and so that makes it oof city. I am actually quite excited for uh, Megalopolis, though. Uh, or, sorry, not Megalopolis. Um, Megatropolis? Oh, no, Megalopolis. God, he directed Bram Stoker's Dracula. Also, apparently, The Rainmaker uh, is good because it looks well-received. Oh, it's a John Grisham novel. Um, everything else looks kind of bad. Anyway, I'm excited for Megalopolis because it's either going to be the best movie that comes out whatever year it comes out or his biggest flop of all time. And I think either way, as a fan of bad Whoa. movies, that's going to make me happy. This is quite the ensemble. Oh, yeah. No, it, and it's it's all his own money, too. That's what when you're looking at that cast, yeah. be reminded it's all of his own money 100 million dollars okay if you asked me to guess the net worth of francis ford coppola it would not have been over a hundred million dollars well it's also the money from his like production company and i'm sure his usual financial backers from from that so sure yeah regardless uh, any, any let's hop on over to germany we have another movie to discuss and that is 2009's the white ribbon Written and directed by Michael Haneke. I am guessing that je- pronunciation felt too Japanese, but what the fuck do I know? It stars Christian Freidel, Ernst Jacobi, and Leonie Banesh. Banesk? Who's to say? Um, the film had an estimated budget of $18 million and a cumulative worldwide gross of $19 million. Um, it's, I was about to say makes it not super successful, but that's also a very warped perspective of what successful means because this is a foreign film. Oftentimes they are done. uh, Their investment comes from the nation in which it was created for the furthering of the arts. So it's tough to also say like whether or not like who who cares about the money Um, and who the film was nominated for two Oscars. It was nominated for best achievement in cinematography for Christian Berger and Best Foreign Language Film of the Year. It won neither. It lost um, in cinematography to Avatar. Oh, fuck oh, that. Oh, fuck you. Oh, my God. A movie that was entirely CGI. Oh, my <laughs> God. Chortle my balls. That is that is egregious. Wow. Okay. Uh, it also lost uh, Best Foreign Language Film of the Year to, oh, The Secret in Their Eyes, which is a really really good movie and it's going on my list for us to do such a good movie um all right anyway uh the film is about strange events happen in a small village in the north of germany during the years before world war one which seemed to be ritual punishment who is responsible 
this was my film, Go so on. I will get us started. Uh, I had not seen this movie before, which is why I wanted to pick it. Um, Michael Haneke, uh, the create the director, Jesus fucking Christ, of uh, Amor. Um, and I think there was another movie of his that I've seen that I liked, but I don't remember what it is. Funny Games. I think I saw Funny Games. Um, I probably have to say I think I saw it. I'm not sure I actually did. Anyway, so I wanted to check this one out. This is one of his other you know, big famous ones that was nominated for a couple Oscars. And it is, it is a very interesting film because it's absolutely not what I was expecting. Based mm-hmm. on the description, I was expecting something a little bit more uh, Hitchcock-like, which is um, a little bit shorter, a little bit more condensed, a little bit more suspense within each scene that's kind of like, you know, you're getting clues, you're getting information, stuff like that. Very much so not what this movie is. This movie is very much so a snapshot in time um, of just this handful of, I guess, months in this one town. Now, there is, there there are, I should say, the, the acts of violence or of, I don't know, crime that are discussed in, in the description. Like, those things all do happen, but there's not nearly so much of a focus on trying to figure out who did that. Those moments are there, but they're not majority focus of the film. Instead, it is very much so a, a view on the characters with that populate this village. Um, and we'll get to that, I guess, in a moment when we start discussing the actual film. Um, that led to it being a little bit slower than I was expecting, but I really very much so did still enjoy it. Um, it had the feeling of reading like Russian literature, which is like, oh, this is long, but I'm kind of liking where it's going. Uh, and I don't know how it's going to end. Um, this felt just like reading Tolstoy. <laughs> so uh, to that effect, mm. I, I did quite like it. I, I'm aware of how that just sounded. Uh, I'm just leaning into it at this point. I, I recently bought Infinite Jest and damn it, I will read it this time. I promised myself. Um, I've tried reading War and Peace a couple times. I don't think it's ever happening. War and Peace was great. Crime Punishment was great. I can't wait to start reading The Brothers Karamazov, which I will start eventually. Um, right now I'm reading a South African novel, which is not as good. Um, but anyway, this is um, I enjoyed this. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to surprise myself when I rate it because I don't know what stars I'm going to give it right now, but I, I, I did. I enjoyed the film. I think that's the strongest language I will use at this point in time. Goran, tell me what you thought of this movie that you probably watched a month ago. Oh, man. I remember several (laughs) things about this film, and I will now list them in an order. Uh, The cinematography, the camera work, the composition was stunning, was perfection utterly just distracted from the actual film itself by just the way things were shot, the way these scenes were pieced together, every angle, every framing, every uh, just every piece of, what was it, Christian Berger's work mm-hmm. um, was perfect. Uh, the actors themselves, I felt, I will give the benefit of the doubt, seeing as it is literally in another language I do not speak, despite taking two semesters of it. Um, And I feel as if the language barrier might cause the 
actual translation of like the their acting and, and what they are portraying in the scenes because I just couldn't seem to get over just how poorly acted it seemed. Just very dull, straightforward, without intricacy or, you know, facial emotion outside of like the pastor. Um, and the story itself being again a lot like the conversation where you're you're not left with much to tie it all together at the end it's it's a lot of hey here are the facts as presented by this one character who was not involved you get nothing else okay you know what fine at the end i could at least accept it um but yeah i chalked the um stoicism of the performances up to the child acting because this is a movie with a lot of child actors um shooting this must have been a real fucking nightmare based on the laws that i'm sure germany also has um and this was pre-world war one josh they didn't have child labor laws that's true there. i forgot this was a documentary <laughs> <laughs> um this was peter jackson's latest restoration my mistake um that and just it the culture being, you know, like small town Germany where emotions are the devil's work. You better I stop. Do, I do want to say uh, the one major disappointment I had for this film was that there was no scene where it basically was surmised at the end. And then we all went to war. Everyone died. The end. I was yeah, they- really hoping for that. They did make mention of it in the end, right? They, there was, um, God, we saw, we both saw this so long ago. We're asking each other what happened in it, which is. He says like he nice. doesn't ever see anyone again, but that's because well, like he leaves. Moved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He leaves. Not everyone died because, well, everyone in Europe died for the next four years. Yeah, it just says that the World War One starts. Um, the narrator gets drafted and then he never goes back. And that's all it really says. So, so it got, you got half of what you wanted ever. The war did happen, yeah, well, but it did not. When, that when has happened. anyone ever been happy getting half of what they wanted? Hey, if I Jack got half, and mate, I mean, Hey man, if, if I got half of the, the mega millions jackpot, I think would be pretty, pretty excited about that. No, you don't get half the winnings. You get half the ticket. I think that's still redeemable. Uh, if you don't have all the numbers, I don't think you're getting the Mega Millions. Can I get some of the millions? I don't play the lottery. Can I, I get minor millions? <laughs> all right. Anywho. I have 51% of this ticket. Is this still legal tender? Actually, if it's money, then it is. By the way, if you have a ripped up bill, it still counts as money. Bring it to your bank. We'll give you a new one. Um. Hot hot money tip from your local movie podcast. From your local financial advisors. Not financial advisors. <laughs> I think it's legally like difficult if you say that we're financial advisors. We're not. Don't listen to us for money. Put all your money up your butt. No one will find it there. Um, unless you're into that, in which case put it somewhere. Else. Will. Uh anyway, let's get into the actual plot of this movie, I guess. Um which Again, because of like the narration does very much so feel like reading Russian literature, which 
is very much so narration based and not much dialogue. Um, there is very much so just kind of like and dull. Don't kind of got. I do not find it dull. If you find it dull, that's you. I find it exciting. <laughs> but uh, it is very much so like poetically guiding you through the events of what has happened. This, because it is a movie, does have more dialogue than I think you'd typically find in the confines of like a you know Russian novel. But like still, it, it had a very similar feel to it. Um, regardless, uh, someone breaks the doctor's, uh, the town's horse's legs using a wire. Um, which you know puts the doctor in a different town because he has to get treated for broken leg syndrome, <laughs> um, and they have to kill that horse. And the movie kind of like starts off with like, oh, who fucking did that? Uh, by the time the police get there, the wire is already gone, which elicits another mystery. Uh, and I guess let's start with that, um, which is essentially maybe starting with just all of the acts as a whole. Uh, additionally, one of the barns gets set on fire. Uh, the local mentally handicapped kid gets beat up real bad. Actually, a lot of kids get beat up pretty bad. Kids go missing uh, and get found in the woods. The young um, baron is almost drowned or uh, flute. That's right. I forgot about that part. Um with constant offerings of reward, constant search parties, looking for people who went missing, all that type of stuff, none of it ever getting resolved or explained. So, Corwin. Yes. What make you of that? Uh, I think this should be shown to prospective parents um, to show that, hey, if you treat your kids like shit, uh, they turn into little fucking monsters that pull the wings off flies. Oh, and literally crucify birds. Uh, remember that part just now. The scissors. Um, yeah, that one was tough. Uh, but I will say, um, yeah, I think uh, I think living in Germany at the turn of the century. Oh, Germany basically any time before like the 90s seems like a pretty awful place to live um Germany, I, you know what i don't know enough the movie I don't, wings of desire yeah i don't know anything about germany uh enough to to say that definitively so i'll just say don't live in germany at any point in time ever throughout uh, all of human history <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. But yeah, I so it is not specifically mentioned. It's not specifically concluded, but I, I think Corwin is 100% right. The kids are doing all of this. Um, it, it's the only thing that makes sense in, and it really makes a lot of sense mm. with kind of what the movie is trying to say, which is that e acts of destruction or evil or whatever um, the bad parts of humanity are passed down. They're, they're not born out of nothing. They are generational. And the film goes so far to say, and a lot of that is because religion is the worst. It <laughs> <laughs> um, says it says it very explicitly. <laughs> and so to that effect, the only thing that 
truly make sense in the film, especially when we see like some of the well, older people. Go go ahead. Do you have a thought? Kind of uh, more about you know the actual plot line of the film. Light on me. Do we ever reach a a attempted conclusion or or some sort of uh, emphasis on why they did what they did specifically to these? kids like i get why they did it to the dad and i get why they did it to the doctor do we understand why it happened to the wealthy kid and who else was it the mentally handicapped the handicapped kid. kid um the wealthy kid i think it was because of his father like that would make some sense sure yeah um, um the doctor for like oh yeah for like sexually assaulting his yeah patients. yeah uh his daughter uh well and i i, I yeah. in my own mind extending it further than that because if you're willing to sure. jump on into incest then you probably diddled a bunch of the kids in town. yeah you're right it's hard to start at incest that's, that's yeah tough. you build your way up there yeah <laughs> oh um i guess i'll just have to rewatch to see what he does in scenes to to warrant such a thing i guess maybe would it come down to just how he always says yeah the kids just like all didn't like him who the doctor oh that's why they were so concerned about always seeing him and how he was doing because he he like survived to tattle on them i think the kids were trying to finish the job like peeking in the window for uh carl Oh, the mentally handicapped kid? Yes. Oh, that would make sense. Um, trying to keep their secret covered up. Because I was also thinking starts. the same thing. Um, it's also been so long since we actually watched this movie. Yeah. Connecting the dots while also discovering dots. And, but that's what makes it kind of interesting as it's getting told from an adult's perspective. You know, it's getting it's not being told from the POV of one of the kids where you get kind of this direct like we are doing this now. We are doing this because of this. This is what we hope to achieve or just to sow discord and chaos uh, like we are doing this. And here are our demands <laughs> like, no, it's being told from not just the perspective of an adult, but the perspective of an adult that seemingly I, I think it's it, it was the school teacher, right? Like an aged version of the school teacher, right? That was the narrator. Yes. I, yeah, that's what I thought. So not even just an adult um, in a vacuum, but a, an adult who is even older and was already an adult at the uh, during the events of the film. So it really, some of that confusion or some of that lack of clarity that, we experience as viewers is also i think meant to be you know the the desired effect it, i because i think part of it is also it's very easy to spot wrongdoing and um the the direct causes of what will eventually become a generational trauma when they're laid out so very readily for you and when someone tells you this is what this is and this is how mm -hmm. i will react and now you've drawn that you haven't had to draw that line i drew it for you um, and the film wants you to work a little bit more on understanding that. Um, but it is, uh, it, 
it makes it for an interesting watch where it feels like kind of in line with the conversation. Like it's happening to, I'm an adult. It's happening to me too. I don't know what's going on. How do I figure this out? Um, but there is actually for, for us, the viewer, a, a through line to follow. Hmm. Man, this movie could have been so good. If only it was spoken in American. Gosh. It's also a very interesting way to uh, uh, time period to kind of have it set in because of the events that it directly leads up to I, World War I, I would absolutely kill for a sequel to this film taking place leading up to or directly after no leading up to World War II because these kids would be like mid 40s when that's taking place when that's starting and seeing how they develop into the people who are either blinded to, supportive of, or directly involved with the things that happened during that war that we tend not to talk about in that country, uh, the Holocaust. They also probably um, be in their 30s by the time World War II actually starts. Well, this is like 19... Because World War One started in 19... I thought it started in 1917, World War I. It started in 1914. It ended in, or the U.S. joined in 1917. That's what I'm thinking then. And then in the war um, ended in 1919. Yes. Yeah. So this is 30 years prior to the start of World War II. That'll be 25, 25, yeah. Because the European um, front of the war started in what? 39. I thought the Americans joined in 39. September First September third, nineteen thirty nine. Pearl Harbor oh. was forty one. Oh damn! I'm so bad with these dates. Um, it's okay. It's just your own history, Josh. It's not my history. Uh, uh, I know. Um, uh, yeah, but it's an interesting time period to leave it off at because of what was the catalyst for World War One. You know, the idea behind colonialism. Well, I was going to say all of the kind of billion of things. Yeah, I was going to say part of it, obviously, the colonialism in regards to the, the Serbian black hand movement that led to the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, but also all the um, treaties and, and the kind of cascading effects that. But that's that assassination World War One so fun because there is no one thing that caused it. Well, that's most worse. <laughs> um, but it, it, I, I think the idea of it building in there is that there, there is, you know, these deep-rooted historical reasons or, or historical passings down that ultimately culminated in the war as well. And to show, again, that this was um, the actions of not just the, the present-day people, but it's also young people fighting in older people's wars. Right. And that's, I, I think, part of the other conclusion to it, which is that the people who fight in wars are not the middle aged 30 year old grown folk you often see in films, especially films that were made during wartime. You watch a lot of those World War II propaganda flicks from the US. You know, a lot of those John Wayne movies, it's like dudes like John Wayne were not fighting in the war. Like John Wayne was 40. They were not drafting John Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> they were drafting 18, 19 maybe even 17 year olds, depending on if they could sneak into the war effort or not, um, which is a direct example of young people having to fight directly fight 
based on the actions of those above them and, and the evils wrought by those people and then therefore commit crimes of their own in a certain sense in, in regards to war. Uh, and so having it leave off at, at that point when we really get our first taste of what is modern warfare and modern combat in a, in a very large scale uh, is also, I think, a very impactful um, time period for them to, to, to choose to kind of lead up to those consequences as well. This was a very fun film that was very difficult to get into at first. Long, long and, and a little slow. Yeah, I, I did not watch this in one single part. Uh, I had to break it up. Perfectly understandable. Th- thank God it looks so damn good. I initially uh, legally downloaded it, and it came in two parts, but was also only at like 720p. And I started watching it, realizing like just by you know composition and things like, oh, this is actually a really pretty film. This is a struggle to watch at this resolution. I'm just going to spend four bucks to rent it. And I'm so glad I did because it looked stunning in HD. Um, I think we covered pretty much all of it. There's not, I'm not going to say we covered all of it. Like we didn't talk about the school teacher's relationship mm. with the woman and all that type of stuff, but who cares? Uh, not me. Uh, so. <laughs> Um, like I said, moving to the one thing I need to say about the school teacher, yes, I could not like him as a character because he looked eerily similar to my old roommate Nick, and I <laughs> could not watch him for two and a half hours seriously, it, it was too much. Fair enough, yeah, <laughs> okay. Fair, fair, fair enough. Was it the lips? It was the lips. It was yeah. the lips and the yeah. eyes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, woo. All right. Well, let's move into final ratings and reviews on this. This is my movie. I'll go first. I give this a solid four. Um, it is really, really well done. It's it's very thoughtful. Um, there's a lot to it that we have, you know, all the minutia that we have discussed already um it's it's again it is a slower film intentionally not like by mistake but that is still makes it a little bit more challenging and a little bit more difficult to say like recommend which i think should be part of your barometer for how much or how how highly reviewed you would make a film you know Mm -hmm. because even films that are niche maybe to like you or your interests um only the best of those, the, sorry, the best of those are, would be movies that you would still recommend to other people. The best bad movie is one that you would tell other people to go watch because it's fun. You know, so e- there's even that scale going in the Morbius. other direction. <laughs> I've still not managed to see it. I, um, I was really close to picking it for this week. It's Morbin time, as the kids say. Uh, but regardless, like recommendability. I, I think is a, is a big factor. And to that end, I, this is a tough recommend because uh, this is not where I would start for a long foreign film. This is not where I would start for a black and white foreign film. Um, this is not where I would start for a long black and white far German film. I would start with M the Fritz Lang film from 1930 something. 
30. We watched that, right? Yes, it's such a good fucking movie. Peter Laurie at his best. Um, All right. So, yeah, four stars from Josh Uh, Corwin. uh, Tell me your stars. stars. Uh, Child acting and German stoicism aside, I thought this was a very enjoyable and thought provoking film. Uh, I got nothing crazy negative to say, so I'll give it. Uh, I'll give it a four. That's a gut call right there. Right on. All right. Well, that brings us into next week's picks. Woo. Very optimistic using the word weeks. Uh, Corn Heller, what are you going with? Oh man, uh, I want you to pick uh, left or right. I have two tabs open. I cannot decide left or right. Left. Boondock Saints 2000. All right. I've never seen it. Wait, is it called Boondock Saints 2000 or Boondock Saints? No, it's just just the Boondock Saints. Gotcha. Okay. I was going to say, is there a a Blues Brothers 2000 version of the Boondock Saints? Um, Okay. Got it. Boondock Saints. You've seen it? All right. Um, I saw it in high school and I remember hating it and have never revisited it. So this will be Love my it. first watch in at least a decade. Love it. Um, Please don't go into this remembering that you hated it. Lose all memory well, of that. I, I, I certainly can because I, when I tell you I remember not a single detail or scene of this movie, I don't remember a single one. <laughs> so... Nice. I can have a truly fresh face for this. Um, all right, I'm going to pick a movie that I had been meaning to pick for the show for a while and just kept kind of forgetting that I wanted to pick it. And I'm going to go with 1987's Angel Heart, a Mickey Rooney film from before all the plastic surgery. Oh, perfect. That's right. I'd love to know what he actually looks like. <laughs> it's a secret. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so check those out. Um, that is 1999's The Boondock Saints and 1987's Angel Heart. Watch them before next week or don't. Your choice. Don't care. Um, in the meantime, if you'd like to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at Big Screen Juice. If you'd like to follow Corwin on Twitter, you can do so at Corwin Heller. If you follow myself on Twitter, you can do so at Joshua B. Tracy. If you'd like to send emails to the show, you can do so at Juice in the Big Screen at gmail.com. And until next time. Y'all have a good one.